This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour. Brooke Nindorf with you today. A bit cooler day here in uh, Port Lincoln. We'll check in with the Weather Bureau shortly. Also coming up, how hard is it for farmers to gather all the, all the advice they need on capturing carbon? Look, it, it's changed, I reckon, in the last probably five years. Um, there was a fair bit of excitement that farmers could make a heap of money out of carbon farming. I think the realisation now is that we're probably going to need most of the carbon if we're capturing any of it to offset our own emissions in our businesses because the, the world and the people who buy our products are wanting low carbon products. We'll have more on that shortly, but I want to hear from you. Do you think there is enough information out there for you as a farmer about capturing carbon? You can send me a text on 0467 922891. Before that, how has Aussie agriculture fared over the past year? The Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics, or ABARES as it's more commonly known, has crunched the numbers and revealed the results at its national conference in Canberra today. And our reporter, Alice Marshall, is there. Good afternoon. I'm here at the 2023 ABARES conference, which is where the government's been crunching the numbers on the agricultural sector over the last financial year. I'm here with the National Rural Reporter, Kath Sullivan. Kath, can you please tell me what does the latest report tell us? Alice, first of all, it's so good to see you here in Canberra. The numbers are in and I can tell you officially it's been a bloody great year for Australian agriculture. For the first time, Australian farmers have produced $90 billion worth of food and fibre and a record-breaking $75 billion worth of exports. Um, Now, this has largely been driven by great conditions. Um, I know that a lot of people got a little bit too wet over the past year, but by and large, it's helped Australia produce its biggest ever winter crop, um, something like 67 million, 64 million tonnes. There's too many numbers here for a journalist like me, but 64 million tonnes across the country. And that's been met with really high prices due to a number of reasons, um, including the conflict in the Ukraine, um, global shortages, the impacts of COVID on the supply chain. There's a number of factors playing into that. But um, I think that Australian farmers will be delighted to see that this has been uh, their highest value year on record yet. And so a bumper crop that we've seen here on the eastern side of Australia, and that's been matched over in the west. Is that right? I would say absolutely more than matched in WA. It's been a record there, 25.6 million tonnes of winter crops. So we're talking things like wheat, barley, canola. Now, this is 61% higher than the 10-year average and 9% higher um, than the previous WA record of 23.4 million tonnes, which was only just set last year. Um, And this has contributed to some really huge on-farm incomes for grain growers. I mean, um, we'll get to talking about inputs and the cost of doing business in a moment because I can hear people saying, hang on a minute, my car's never been so expensive to run or um, I can't find workers. But um, when we look at on-farm incomes, according to ABARES, which is the government's commodity forecaster, the average cropping farm income this past financial year was $665,000. Now, that's on average, and I don't know um, how common average is. Um, That certainly sounds like a huge figure. It was also a record figure for dairy farmers this year. They've seen some high returns after um, a 
fairly rough trot. I, I think you could say more bad years than good in, in recent times. And dairy farmers on average have had an income of 390000 which is up from the Broadacre um, farm average of 371000 which actually fell back a little bit this year on last year. I think it was down about 7%. And some of the reasons for that might be the fact that fertiliser costs are absolutely through the roof. I think two and a half times what you might expect. And of course, with the flooding, we saw a lot of damage to some crops and uh, importantly, a lot of damage to roads as well, which has really slowed up the supply chain. Yeah, but as you touched on, despite some some very difficult and trying conditions this past financial year, we have seen a fantastic outcome and Mm. that's been... The is it the third fantastic outcome in a row? Well, I think it's a fantastic outcome. I'm sure there'll be somebody listening who can tell me there's a reason why this isn't a good thing. But um, this is $2 billion up on last year's record, $88 billion. That was unheard of um, at that time. Now it's $90 billion. Of course, the industry has set a goal led by the National Farmers Federation to be worth $100 billion by the year 2030. Um, It might seem like it's getting within reach, but ABS Chief Economist Jared Greenville has warned that it's unlikely that we'll have another record-breaking year next year. He points to just two examples of a run of um, three good years in a row, one in the 70s, the other in the 90s, and he really points to this as being the high watermark. Here's a little of what he had to say. The expectation, unless we get a return of these kind of seasonal conditions, which would be very unusual in the historical record, three run of good seasons only happened twice, as far as we can see looking back, once in the 90s and once in the, in the 70s. Um, so it's more likely that we'll shift to a, a more normal but harder environment um, to work in. And so in terms of production outcomes, it's likely for the next couple of years that this is the high watermark. Um, and what will grow sector value going forward will have to be price and the prices that we get and that's where international markets will be very important. That's Jared Greenville from ABEARS there. So Kath, what is the report saying when it comes to the next financial year? Well, when we look at the headline figures, um, it's forecasting that the value of farm produce next year will be $81 billion, so back by $9 billion, and farm exports will also fall by $11 billion to $64 billion in the next financial year. And you heard um, Jared Greenville really touch on it there in that grab, that if farmers do want to boost the returns, the way to do that is most likely going to be by value-adding their product and Um, finding new markets or getting existing markets to pay more for their produce. And I think that's the thing we're going to hear a lot about here um, at the ABS Outlook in Canberra over the next couple of days. So hopefully more to come when it comes to how to actually do that. And we're going to find out. Well, when you think about it, Alice, I mean, um, we've seen our biggest winter crop. There's been more land planted than I think ever before in intercropping. Um, So farmers are really making the most of what they've got of of the natural assets and of this high rainfall. And hopefully they'll be able to capitalise on the high soil moisture again in the coming year. But uh, yeah, there is a bit of a warning there that um, that perhaps this is as good as it's going to get for a little while.
National Rural Reporter Cass Sullivan ending that discussion with Alice Marshall from the ABARES conference in Canberra and we'll hear more from that uh, that conference over the next couple of days. Now there's still plenty more for producers to learn when it comes to carbon capturing. That's according to ag consultant Cam Nicholson who will be in Woodnut tomorrow speaking with producers about the practical steps towards carbon neutrality. He says the momentum has been building in the carbon world and more farmers are keen to learn. So I'm really putting the, I suppose, the farm perspective on it. Um, what can we do in a, a sort of a changing world all the time? What do I think is a safe space for farmers to be working towards without committing too much? What do you think that is, what that safe space is? Oh, at the moment, I've been saying to any of the clients I'm working with is just understand your emissions on your farm because at the moment, you know, in places like New Zealand, they have to do that as mandatory now. Um, it's voluntary in Australia at the moment, but I think, farmers would be better to get on the front foot and actually understand what that is and where those main emission sources are because uh, then at least it gives you a chance to, to look at them and think can I be more efficient in that, that space. Is it a bit of a, a buzzword still carbon or is it m- more and more people are looking at it because of what you say like the red meat industry has been doing to, to look at uh, you know being carbon neutral by 2030? Yeah it look, look it, it's changed I reckon in the last probably five years, um, there was a fair bit of excitement that farmers could make a heap of money out of carbon farming. I think the realisation now is that we're probably going to need most of the carbon if we're capturing any of it to offset our own emissions in our businesses because the, the world and the people who buy our products are wanting low carbon products. And so if you sell your carbon to someone else, then you don't have that carbon to offset what your emissions are. So I've seen a very rapid shift from that, oh, we're going to make a heap of money out of carbon to actually hang on, I might need that carbon for my own business. You touched on this a bit, Cam, but do you think producers understand this going forward and what they need to do? I, I think there's more that we need to learn. The biggest challenge, I think, is that it's it's changing so rapidly. That you know, I, I started on this in 2014, I think it was, when I did my first calculations, and the rules have changed probably five or six times in that space. So you know, if a producer doesn't feel they're 100% up to speed in it, it's quite understandable because the, the world is changing very, very quickly. So really, if, if producers want to know something, there are some core things that I think they need to have their heads around and then they just watch the rest of the, the sort of space evolving and, and the different rules changing as such. Do you think that those rules will continue to change? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> because it's a, if you think of the way this, this whole carbon job is happening around the world, you've got to get consensus from... In, at the moment, in the case, over 200 countries have all got to agree to certain rules and regulations. And, of course, every country looks at it and goes, oh, well, that will disadvantage us and it will advantage someone else, so I'm not too keen on doing that bit or that bit. So trying to find that line that everybody agrees to and is willing to accept means that there's constant compromise. And that's going on every time they have these conferences, these community of practice conferences around the world. There's new ideas and new things that come out. So we have to adapt to those pretty well on an annual basis. I guess preparing for those rules to change is is a a, a trap that might get producers sort of sucked in. But what other tips and and traps would you uh, be putting forward as as, uh, producers consider a carbon neutral path? Yeah, I I think from agriculture is in a, a good space in the sense that we can also sequester carbon. We can soak up carbon, main two sources being in vegetation and in soils and if you think a lot of other industries they don't actually have that opportunity so while we emit stuff with our livestock and our cropping 
We've also got an opportunity to soak it up within our business, so to speak. So the other thing that we should really be looking at is where are those sequestration opportunities, those opportunities to capture carbon that yeah, other industries don't have. Now, of the two, I'm more and more comfortable with the tree side of things. The soil stuff has been bandied around as being a real you know, enormous opportunity for us, but um, having been an agronomist for 35 odd years, I just know how variable soils are and how hard they are to measure. And so the risk is that you get a measurement one time and you count on that and then you get a measurement five years later and it's actually gone down simply by natural variability of where you've sampled and it looks like you've run your soil carbon down when in fact you haven't. Um, where at least trees, if they're growing and they continue to grow, you can see that they're capturing and we can measure that they're capturing more carbon. Our consultant Cam Nicholson, and you can hear more from Cam at the MLA Meetup Forum in Woodner tomorrow at the Woodner Community Club. There's a wide range of speakers uh, speaking from 9 until 6pm. Now let's stick with carbon, and there is lots of advice out there for farmers who want to start looking at their carbon emissions. However, there's farmers already working in the carbon farming space. Julian Carroll runs a seed stock business in Majigonga, 50 kilometres south of Wodonga, with 350 Angus females producing steers for the EU feed lock market. Before he went farming, Julian was an economist, so he loves crunching numbers, but for the past two years, he's been calculating the carbon footprint of the farm as part of a monitoring project and has planted trees over 17% of the total area of his property. Annie Brown spoke to him at a Victorian Farming Carbon Conference and asked him what he does on his farm. I guess in this whole carbon discussion, we still see the most important drivers to be uh, productivity and profitability and our sustainability. So uh, we've planted a lot of trees on the farm. We're up to about 17% of the total area on the farm that I've got the stats for today that we talk about. And we do that not to generate, you know, carbon credits or or to sequester carbon specifically, but we do that for uh, biodiversity and protecting riparian zones and stock shelter, that sort of thing. So would you say uh, what you do on your farm is a bit more like insetting rather than offsetting, like what we've talked about here at the conference? Yeah, it, it is it is insetting, but it's not done for insetting. Insetting is a bonus of, right. of uh, the other benefits, for, obviously, for planting trees. I think another thing that's been mentioned a few times already in the conference today is that um, there's a lot of confusion around carbon and farming. Would you agree with that? Do you think it's kind of a confusing space for producers and farmers to get into? Yeah, it is a confusing space. I spend a lot of time with different groups of farmers, and it's usually the issue they want to talk about, and there's a lot of misconceptions because there's you know, quite different topics and issues to consider uh selling carbon credits uh, is is you know one almost topic one topic that's quite different to uh simply understanding your own carbon footprint uh, and the metrics around understanding your carbon footprint you know can be confusing as well the industry goal of or aspiration of becoming carbon neutral i think has been interpreted by many farmers as something that they've got to achieve on their farm when I think the reality is quite clear that that's probably not going to happen. So, yeah, it's obvious that there's confusion abounds. What's the goal for, for your farming business? Our goal is not to sell ACUs, but to, to really understand our footprint and be able to make claims about the carbon intensity that goes into our beef production. So that when we're marketing a truckload of steers to whichever aspect of the supply chain, we can say uh, we, produce this, we use this much carbon to produce this load of steers. So that buyer can then decide if uh, our steers present uh, or offer better value than maybe another producer that they're, that they're talking to. Are you already finding a demand for that with your clients? 
No, not yet. Um, we're seeing some early days with, with projects with coals, uh, which we're not part of, but we think it's probably the writing on the wall. And, uh, you know, our, our beliefs in the business is to... Re- uh, you know, a way we can reduce risk is to make sure our product is as marketable as possible. We do that with things like our breed composition, getting intramuscular fat in our, in our genetics. And another thing we'll do is just be making sure that we can market our cattle with a carbon footprint. Julian Carroll, he's a beef producer from Mudjigonga, speaking to Annie Brown. Brooke Nindorf with you today. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, a dry autumn is forecast for most of Australia with dry and warmer conditions underway for the next three months. The Bureau of Meteorology has released its long-range forecast for autumn 2023 and it indicates warmer-than-usual daytime temperatures are very likely this autumn for much of Australia. The Bureau of Meteorology's Dr Andrew Watkins said drier-than-average conditions have already emerged in some areas over summer, including parts of southern Queensland, western Tasmania and southwest western Australia. Australia's key climate drivers are easing and expected to be neutral over the coming months, but when our climate drivers are more neutral, autumn rainfall in southern Australia has generally been lower than average over recent decades. Dr Andrew Watkins is speaking here to Michael Condon. Yeah, looking drier for much of the continent, except along the New South Wales coast and eastern Victoria, and then pretty much warmer than average right across the, right across the country. And looks as though La Nina is waning? Yeah, very much so. I think on its last legs uh, at the moment, look, we've uh, been monitoring it, of course, for some time. It's been having a big impact on Australia over the last three years. But there's no real signs of it coming back uh, from where it is now and uh, neutral is the most likely uh, outlook for the autumn. And we, But we can't call, like, El Nino yet? No, certainly too early to make any call on El Nino. If we, if we were going to make any call at all, it would be a move, of course, to El Nino Watch, meaning there's about a 50% chance. We haven't quite hit that mark yet. But, look, it's certainly one to be keeping an eye on. The, the most likely scenario, or rather the least likely scenario, is La Nina, and then neutral or El Nino in the outlooks, or rather are possible for the rest of this year. But with climate change, it looks as though neutral means warmer and drier. Is that right? Well, unfortunately, yeah. The the last um, couple of decades, or rather three decades, we've actually seen a warming uh, across much of the country, but we've also seen a drying trend in the southern parts of the country. Between 10 and 15% decrease in rainfall for effectively the southern half of Australia for the, the critical April to October period, that, that crop and pasture growing season. So, yeah, and unfortunately, the, the future also does look drier as well. So so neutral these days doesn't automatically mean a flip back to, to completely normal weather. It possibly means a flip to something a bit drier than we used to have. So farmers looking for autumn rain, should they be nervous? Well, I think farmers are always nervous. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully they've got some soil moisture um, after the... the 
last couple of years. Look, it does look as though the drier months of autumn could be the, the April and May period. So we might get a, a little bit at the start, but just be a little bit uh, you know, cautious of that, that false spray. And maybe, you know, the drier since 2019, which is right at the back end of the, of the long drought. Yeah, so we're not going to anything like 2019 where we'd already had a couple of years mm. at least of very dry and hot conditions. But the outlook, yes, certainly is similar in some ways to the outlook we were issuing in 2019. But look, a dry outlook with uh, average to wetter than average soils is is a lot better than a situation than we were in 2019. Yeah, of course. And and are we talking about the whole of Australia drier and and uh, drier and warmer? That that seems to be the the overriding thing. Yeah, whole of Australia. Look, maybe the only state that's sort of the majority, maybe near normal, is Tasmania. Um, although in the northwest, they're still looking like it could be drier. But yeah, basically everywhere across the continent, drier. Remembering we're going into the dry season for northern Australia, so drier or wetter than normal doesn't mean an awful lot once you get into the dry. Bureau of Meteorology is Dr Andrew Watkins speaking with Michael Condon and let's stick with the uh, the Bureau of Meteorology and uh, we're joined by Vince Rollins. Uh, g'day Vince, it's um, I'm here in Port Lincoln and it's cold and windy. What's happening with this weather? Yeah, it is a little bit chilly in parts, Brook. Um, but yeah, things are going to warm up over the next few days. Still pretty good conditions in the north of the state but yeah, we've just got uh, a, a ridge of a ridge sort of sitting over southern or southern central parts of the state at the moment, a bit of a low pressure system sitting south of Tasmania, so that's directing directing a pretty cool west to southwesterly airstream over the sort of southern parts of the state, going a little bit more southeast southeasterly to the north, and a little bit of shower activity around as well, but uh, yeah, not uh, not too much now, it's starting to ease off, but uh, we do have an embedded front in that uh, southwesterly airstream that will come through sort of southern parts later tonight into tomorrow morning, so just uh, enhancing that shower activity over the southern agricultural area and pushing it a little bit further north as well, just uh, maybe reaching the, the far south of the Flinders district, but yeah, it looks like we'll get uh, a little bit more follow-up rain tomorrow so we had a little bit around uh, over the last 24 hours generally most of that activity was around the Mount Lofty ranges where we had up to about nine millimeters but elsewhere parts of the mid-north got up to a couple of millimeters and around the southeast got up to two or three millimeters and similar over York Peninsula as well and some of the west coast areas got uh, just a bit less than a millimetre so yeah on the radar still a little bit uh, of shower activity around at the moment but certainly um, that will be enhanced tomorrow as that uh, frontal feature comes through so another cool day tomorrow but then those showers start contracting southwards. Still a little bit of activity around Thursday morning about southern coasts and ranges and maybe the east coast of of Air Peninsula. But yeah, certainly on an easing trend and temperatures start to, to warm up a little bit as well. Wind's starting to go a little bit more easterly in parts. But as we head uh, further towards the weekend, we do have a, a trough that is expected to move across the state during the weekend. So as we head into Friday, winds really starting to go more northeasterly. So just driving those temperatures up a little bit. So we will see temperatures continuing 
continuing to rise on Friday into Saturday ahead of that trough as well but then uh, particularly around coastal fringes starting to cool off a little bit on Sunday into Monday as the winds go back around to to a southerly but still uh, pretty good temperatures uh, over inland parts so just in those 30s but uh, peak peak of the temperatures over some of the northern parts maybe getting into the high 30s around 40 degrees but then uh, we start to see those easing a little bit next week but uh, yeah once we get through Thursday looking at mainly dry conditions maybe a little bit of fog around the southeast and a return to uh, maybe some light shower activity around southern the far southern parts of the state on Sunday but elsewhere it's just looking dry so yeah a bit of shower activity around uh, thinking maybe one to five millimetres over most parts of the southern agricultural area but creeping up to around five to ten millimetres about southern coasts and and ranges so ranges getting right up uh, towards the southern flinders and there could be some isolated falls in there particularly about Mount Lofty Ranges and the lower southeast coast getting up to 15 millimetres so not uh, huge totals but a nice little bit of rainfall to follow up on some of the rainfall we've seen over the last couple of days Brook and uh, yeah if you're not uh, liking this chilly weather too much uh, we are certainly warming up towards the weekend. Fantastic thanks very much for your time Vince. No worries. Vince Rollins at the Bureau of Meteorology. And uh, let's go to the Western Inlands for tomorrow for the Upper Western. Sunny with wind south to southwesterly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Overnight temperatures falling to between 13 and 19, with daytime temps reaching 28 to 34. For the Lower Western, partly cloudy, wind southwesterly, 25 to 35 kilometres per hour. Overnight temperatures falling to around 12, with daytime temps reaching the mid to high 20s. Make sure you stay tuned to the country. We're going to take a journey down the Darling River to see how flood recovery is going. Plus plenty more. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks very much for your company today. Coming up over the next half an hour, when it comes to deciding what food goes into your shopping trolley each week, what are your top priorities? Is it nutrition, affordability, convenience? The cost of living is going up like crazy. The cost of food is its bonkers. And so I, I just want to recognise that sometimes these discussions come from a position of privilege. So for the most part, people want food that they connect to, that brings back good memories, that tastes amazing, that they think is going to be good for them. For a lot of people that are busy, they, they kind of want it to be easy. What decisions do you make when you go shopping now? Send me a text on 0467 We're going to have more on the shift in food shopping very shortly and uh, we'd love to hear from you. But before that, let's get the latest from the newsroom with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, investigators of the deadly mid-air collision of two helicopters above the Gold Coast Broadwater in January say the pilot of the helicopter coming into land did not hear a call over the radio by the pilot taking off. Four people died in the crash, six people were seriously injured and four others sustained minor injuries. Police are concerned about the death toll on the state's roads heading into the long weekend. Two men died in a crash between a car and a truck at Old Calprum in the Riverland yesterday. 31 people have been killed on SA roads this year, compared to 15 at the same time last year.
And the Police Commissioner Grant Stevens is disputing comments from an anonymous four-page letter regarding the state of female officers. Mr Stevens says he doesn't deny the challenges that police are currently facing around recruitment, but he says an allegation that female officers get special treatment is undermining the effort that the majority put into their work. More news at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Matt. Matt Coleman in the newsroom. Now, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority has released its plan to run the river system for the year ahead, and it's got a lot of water to manage. The authority says that in November and December, the Murray system had the largest volume of water flow in 127 years of records. Warwick Long speaks to Andrew Reynolds, the Executive Director of River Management at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, about just how much water has been in the system. At Hume Dam, where we undertake most of our operations, it's really about trying to uh, release what water we can in between rainfall events and then uh, as the next rain comes in and the peak inflow to the storage comes, being able to capture a bit of that to reduce the peak that comes out on the other side. So we're sort of turning the water on and off uh, in response to each rainfall that we we get. Um, But through those sort of four or five months when it was really wet, uh, that became very challenging. And effectively the river was open from Yarrawonga to the sea, wasn't it? That's right. So all of the the weirs all the way down through South Australia, Mildura and Wentworth, uh, all of those had been stripped out so that uh, as much water could pass through them as, as was possible. Let's talk about your operations then looking forward. What does this much water in the system mean for how you're looking at running the river system this year? For storages at this time of year, they're at a record high level, which is not surprising given how much rain we've had. Uh, so as we as we move forward through into summer, we'll return into regulated conditions and we'll be delivering water to meet, meet demands. Um, we still have some unregulated water, so more water than we need coming out of the lower Darling, um, and so that's providing for, for water at the downstream parts of the system. But over the next couple of months, we'll just be releasing enough to meet demands, and if it turns dry or continues to be dry as it has for the last little bit. We'll see Hume Dam in particular fall away. Uh, If it goes very dry, that could get down to around 60%. And then we'll see as we come into winter just exactly where we are. If it's a little bit wetter than that, Hume will be a bit higher and we might need to make some releases to make some airspace for next winter and spring. But it's a bit too early to be making those decisions now. Is that one of the difficulties, I suppose, when it's when it's dry, you have a lot of airspace to, to deal with and everyone's sort of okay with you capturing as much water as possible. But is is one of this one of the difficulties is is trying to find the line between how much storage you have for irrigation entitlements and maximizing that amount of water in the in the basin and also leaving room for possible heavy rain and flooding events that could follow? That's absolutely the challenge and the operating arrangements we have set for us by government is to to err on the side of storing water and making sure that we maximise the water available to entitlement holders. But as as we get closer to to winter and we know things are likely to turn a bit wetter, then we will be very carefully analysing how much airspace we've got. It's interesting, after all the wet conditions we've had, the Bureau's outlook for for autumn is for a drier than average period. So we're certainly seeing a switch from wet to dry conditions and we now need to manage through that. How long will it take to, to draw down areas like Dartmouth Dam? Uh, so we wouldn't need to draw on Dartmouth Dam in the current season. Um, plenty of water in Hume to meet all of the demands we'd anticipate. We've made a 
small release from Dartmouth just over the last couple of weeks to create a little bit of airspace in Dartmouth just in case we do get a large rainfall event, but we wouldn't anticipate drawing on Dartmouth to meet demands uh, over coming months. And I'll swing around then to, to the other major storages that people watch closely and there was criticism for how quickly uh, the Menindee Lakes were drawn down after the, the last time they had a major filling event. How are you looking to manage the Menindee Lakes this year? So we're not expecting to draw on Menindi unless it goes very, very dry. Uh, certainly not before late in April would be as early as we'd likely to, to draw any water from Menindi. So they're likely to stay quite high. And there's still flows coming into the Menindi Lakes now. Water New South Wales are managing that and, and letting some water go um, through the Lower Darling and the Great Darling Anna Branch as well. So we don't anticipate needing to call on Menindi uh, Lakes in, in this current season unless uh, things go very dry and then the call would be relatively modest. Is that a change compared to how it was managed in the past? Uh, no, the arrangements are still the same. Um, it's just that there's so much water in the system at the moment that we don't anticipate needing any water from Menindi to meet the demands we have. MDBA Executive Director of River Management, Andrew Reynolds, speaking with Warwick Long. And Renmark Irrigation Trust Chief Executive, Rosalie Orich, says with a huge amount of water in the system, it's good that the authority is making plans to avoid another flood. Well, there's certainly a large amount of water in the basin. Uh, irrigation offtake has been reduced because the basin's been wetted up. I believe the uh, inflows to South Australia have dropped to as low as about 33 gigalitres at the border, uh, which is still higher, though, than normal operations. So we still are in a, a higher flow situation, but nowhere near a major flood situation. I was believe that, you know, it will be a difficult or a careful management of the basin is required and the catchments, uh, it, we probably only need an average rainfall to create potentially another high river. So from a river perspective, we know that regular high rivers, not floods, but regular high rivers are really, really good where, where water does spill out from in the lower Murray uh, where water spills out over the floodplain is very, very good. And uh, whilst I'm not an ecologist, um, most farmers and growers would know and gardeners would know that, you know, if you get new plants generating from the flood we've just had, they would probably love a drink in uh, the next season. Are you hearing much from irrigators around any concerns about a, another potential flood and or, I guess, concern about moving into a, a drier period? Well, I think people are watching the water very carefully, but, you know, the regular storage reports that come out is showing that we're still very high storage compared to some of the leaner years, and uh, people will be monitoring that. I was just reading a report that indicates that people are struggling to sell their spare allocation because no one needs water and there's very little carryover space available. So these are, these are just things, from an irrigation perspective, we can be certain that we'll have very good allocations in this coming water year. Be surprised if the system would change so dramatically. But I do think it's good that the Murray-Darling Basin is planning for some releases. Um, airspace is really important. It, it's always a difficult balance to get to, or to consider the retention of water for future use versus not 
artificially holding the storages so high that when everything floods, it's a major flood. I would much rather see the return of lower level floods that we used to have or high rivers or minor floods. We were happy to see the water, but boy, that was a big one that we just had. Remark Irrigation Trust, Rosalie Orich, speaking with Eliza Burlage. Let's stick with uh, the water now. And while flooding has impacted large parts of New South Wales, along the Darling River, a number of properties have been cut off for months. The water has had a restorative impact on the landscape, with areas like Menindi, Wilcannia and Tilpa to the north getting their best soak in decades. Bill Ormond takes a journey up the Darling to discover how different communities have managed the flood. A free-flowing, full Darling River near Menindi is a spectacular sight, flooding paddocks for kilometres on end. An event like this comes roughly once in a decade and is a sight locals savour. More than 200 kilometres of river has burst its banks since the middle of last year. It couldn't be more different to the Sick River, which suffered through the dramatic fish kills of 2019. Three years ago, we were in a solid drought, so we had no water in the river. <laughs> exactly opposite. But, you know, that's, that's living on the land. Barb Arnold has been boating in and out of her property, Bindara on the Darling, since June. It means if I want to go anywhere, it means a nine and a half k trip downstream to where my vehicle is. Barb runs goats on her station south of Menindi, but her business has essentially stopped since last year. We were caught out a little bit because how high it was going to come and how high it actually came was, was a little bit different. So I've got goats spread around in different places. You know, I've got some over here on a hill and got some over there on a hill and a few in between over there and there. And so, yeah, it'll wait till the water goes down and put them all back together in, in the right paddocks. The Darling River has reached levels not seen locally since 1976. With roads around the region cut and her homestead surrounded by water, it's meant Barb Arnold's station stay business has also been paused. She's hoping it'll restart in the middle of the year. Our farm stay business has been null and void since April or May or something like that. So once the roads are cut, the public can't use them, the public can't come. And so our business is put on hold. And so we've been on hold all that long time. Not that she's complaining. She's enjoyed the return of a huge number and variety of birds she hasn't seen since before the drought. We've got over 152 different species of bird that's come here. Not all live here all the year round. Some just migrate here to, to um, nest, which is lovely. And while the birds have returned, so too have the fish including the introduced and environmentally destructive carp. They have bred in epic proportions. Yes, it's been such a long flood, both in the Murray and in the Darling system, that carp have had essentially a non-stop two-year window to breed up. Ian Ellis works along the Darling River for New South Wales Fisheries. He saw the fish kills of 2019 and has watched carp numbers in the system explode. And when the rivers are in the channels, they don't breed up in huge numbers. They prefer this shallow stuff like where we're sitting now. They get out in that warm stuff and, and the adults will lay their eggs, which will sit in that warm water and, and develop very quickly. And while millions are breeding across the state, he says many will die over the coming months as water returns into the river. They've probably overdone it and there are too many of them. 
they haven't yet worked out in the 50, 60 years they've been here that when the water starts to drop, you're going to be stuck and you're going to dry out. So a lot of smaller fish are being stranded and dying, which is great. But we will see a noticeable jump in the, in the population for the next three or four years. With the Menindee Lakes sitting at 103% capacity, it's not just carp benefiting from the conditions. Native species are also thriving. When they fill up, they're so nutritious, they're warm. Baby fish that drift into there don't have to fight the current, they're full of food. So you get this mass survival during flood events or high flow events. The Menindee Lakes and the Lower Darling are crucial to the Murray Cod and the Golden Perch that most people love. And I don't think you'll speak to anyone that isn't happy to see yabbies going nuts again at the moment. Ian and other fishery staff are monitoring the river as the water comes back into the Darling off the floodplains. They're particularly watching what oxygen levels are doing to avoid any potential blackwater events where fish suffocate. When the flood finally recedes, it's like when you've washed your dog, you pour the bucket out, the very last bit of water's got all the dirt and the muck in it. That's coming in as the flood recedes and that adds more carbon to the system, more sediment, more nutrients which help feed the algal blooms that are probably going to occur. It's not just fishery staff who are watching the river. Barkindji man Eddie Harris grew up on these banks north of Menindee at Wilcannia. Yeah, it's life. Yeah, people always up and down to the river, fishing, camping. You know, our mob from away come home and set up camp down the river. He says when the river is running, the mood in town completely changes. I go away a lot, but I always come home to the river and uh, yeah, that's where I get all my you know, strength from, visions. You know, when it's, when it's flowing, we are more active on what we do in the community here, black and white. Eddie Harris says while the river is flowing, it's seen better days. He's hoping communities up and down the Murray-Darling Basin come together to ensure water continues to run into the future. I think we're all in this together. But if we could sit down and make sure that it keeps flowing, coming through, just by looking at the colour of the water, we know it's sick. While the river has dropped significantly, there are still solid flows and more than enough for the local kids. But here in Tilpa, the water has receded back into the river and now the hard work has begun to sow crops. For farmers like the McClures, it's a once-in-a-decade chance to make the most of paddocks which have spent months soaked underwater. Five generations of McClures have lived on Kalara Station, 150 kilometres north of Wulcania, near Tilpa. Our family have been at Clara since 1979. Prior to that, our family came to Wulcania in the late 1880s. The luscious green grassy paddocks showcase the spoils of sodden floodplains. This area has had two floods in the past 12 months. One was what we call a medium flood, which is a flood that covers 10% of our property beneficially. And we've seen a, uh, an extreme flood where we've seen nearly 60% of our property covered in water. Justin McClure and his wife Julie were forced to boat around their property for about five months during the most recent flood. This year, Kalara has almost doubled its average rainfall, providing their soil the moisture to sow cereal crops. We're opportunistic people and we grow crops when opportunities present. This is one particular example of where we've had a very good season and a very good rainfall event and we've had beneficial flooding.
as the golden glow of the morning hits, final adjustments are being made before seeds are loaded onto tractors. From there, they'll be planted into fields which don't exactly resemble traditional cropping country. Tell me what we've got here. What you got here? You get some nice grey black dirt. <laughs> that is um, the every fertile. It's been under about a metre of water. So you've got organic sorghum agitator, which will go to the organic chook market. The back-to-back -back floods should sustain the McClure's for the next 18 months. Moisture is a huge injection to our business. It gives us security. It gives us security of planning. It lets us uh, take, take the opportunities. Workers are pushing to plant as much as possible. Justin is hoping they'll be able to harvest around 1,600 hectares this season, along with 800 the next. Workers know it'll be a busy few weeks trying to make the most of a potentially special season. For those up and down the river, the flooding, while inconvenient at times, has done wonders for the environment and the people whose livelihoods depend on it. We'll probably collectively have to realise that as important as this basin is to keep growing stuff, like we need food, we need fibre, we also want that to persist and we also want the ecology to persist so we might have to move a little bit past the whole droughts and flooding rain mentality and well hey, that's true but we might have pushed it a bit far. We're humans, we have an impact, we can accept that and we can, we can sort of turn that corner a bit and I think that's where we're heading. It's a natural phenomenon that, that, and this is what they call floodplain country near the river, except, you know, where we are because we're on a sand hill, but that's how it survives. It, it got that intermittent good long drink and then it went away again. It wasn't something that was, um, you know, it was just natural. Billamond with that report featuring Barb Arnold from Bindara on the Darling near Menindee, New South Wales Fisheries Manager Ian Ellis, Buckingham Man and Wilcannia artist Eddie Harris and Justin McClure from Kalara Station near Tilper. And that story was produced for Landline, so you can go and watch that at ABC iView and you can also read the story at abc.net.au slash Broken Hill. It's 10 minutes to one. Weeknights from seven. Peter Gers. Hello, Rose. Hello. And your brother has been on the kids quiz, hasn't he? Yes. Is he annoying, Rose? Yes, very annoying. Is he? Oh. Peter Gers. Weeknights from seven. And do you annoy him? Yes. What do you do? Whack him, kick him, punch him. <laughs> <laughs> but you love him, don't you? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, the dairy industry has been shrinking for a long time here in Australia and in many countries around the world. But one place that's bucking that trend is the United States. So what are they doing differently? Meg Power caught up with American food consultant Mike McCulley to shed some light on the situation. I grew up on a farm, a grain and beef cattle farm in northern Illinois, and then I started working in... Uh, at Kraft Foods in 1996 in dairy purchasing, and I've been in the dairy industry for over 25 years, uh, about 16 years at Kraft, and then about 11 years ago I left to start my own consulting business where I work uh, pretty much exclusively with dairy. You're um, probably as good a person as anyone then to tell me, what does the dairy industry look like over in the U.S. at the moment? 
the uh, the dairy industry in in, the, in America is I'd say quite dynamic. There's a lot of investment going on. Uh, in in contrast to what we've talked about here the last day or so at the conference about the the shrinking of the Australian dairy industry, the U.S. has continued to grow. It, it, milk production grows roughly one to one and a half percent year over year, and it's been doing that for decades. And, and that, that trend is going to continue. And there's wow. lots of investment at the farm level, particularly at large farms. And uh, the, the number of, of dairy plants that are being built right now, there's over $5 billion of investments in new dairy plants that are being constructed this year out into next year. Wow. I'm, I mean, over here we're consolidating dairy processes at the moment. and we're, we're shrinking, as you said before. What's your secret? What's your fertilizer as such over in the U.S.? So the, the cost structure is up right now for feed and fertilizer and land prices, but for the large farms that are expanding and are going to grow, it's just, it's, uh, it's just a, a blip for them, and they just continue to invest and build uh, dairies, 10,000, 20,000, or larger cow dairies. And they see the long-term investment paying off. They have a, a low-cost production model that they can... Uh, that they can generate a good cash return. And, and it's also interesting, I had several questions yesterday about what well, are these corporate farms? And in the U.S., we really don't have corporate farms. These are largely, you know, some of the, the biggest farms in, in the country uh, are still family-owned. Now, it could be multiple family members or multiple families, but we really don't have outside investment money and things like that in, in dairy farming. It's still very much like 99-plus percent uh, our family-owned uh, enterprises. Wow, so very different here in Tasmania, particularly up in the northwest, where we have some of the most uh, corporatized farms in the in the country. What can Australia learn from what's happening in the U.S.? I, I, one of the messages I had, I think it resonated, and a lot of people talked to me after it, after the, uh, mentioning it, is adopting a growth mindset. And I think that that is again, that's not only U.S. agriculture, but U.S. dairy industry has a growth mindset to where we're going to continue to grow. We have demand to meet, not only domestically, but in the export market and global market, and figuring out you know, how do we make that happen. So that's, and again, it's, it's part of it is just a, a psychology to where we're going to grow, not, not shrink. Uh, some of the comments I heard yesterday was, you know, you can't, you can't shrink your way to prosperity. Uh, you know, and one of the things I learned a long time ago was if you're not growing, you're dying. And, and that's, again, that, I think that's a perspective that a lot of the in people in the U.S. dairy industry have is that we're going to continue to grow and we're going to continue to prosper because of we have supply growth, but then that's meeting the demand growth uh, globally as well as in the domestic market. U.S. food industry consultant Mike McCulley from the McCulley Group just outside of Chicago speaking with Meg Powell. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, when it comes to deciding what food goes into your shopping trolleys each week, what are your top priorities? Is it nutrition, affordability, convenience? We'd love to hear from you. Send me a text on 0467 922891. Nate Kinch tackles this from the point of view of a practical socio-technology ethicist, which basically means he helps governments and food corporations be a positive influence. And he says stories are key to getting people to care more about their food and where it comes from. The cost of living is going up like crazy. The cost of food is its bonkers. And so I, I just want to recognise that sometimes these discussions come from a position of privilege. So for the most part, people want food that they connect to, that brings back good memories, that tastes amazing, that they think is going to be good for them. For a lot of people that are busy, they, they kind of want it to be easy. 
and they might have kids that they're running around. So, so those, those things around price and convenience and utility, fundamental. And sometimes when we talk about these bigger picture discussions about how do we make the food system better, how do we tackle big issues like sustainability, we sometimes forget that at the end of the day, folks are going in going, can I afford that thing? Are my kids going to eat it? Are my fussy kids going to eat it? So we've got to ground a lot of the work that we're doing in that stuff. But when we go beyond that, when you walk into a, a grocery store or a local supermarket or a Woolies or a Coles, whatever it might be, people aren't always standing there with an apple or a lean cut of steak or whatever it is going, how does this map to my values? You know, because they're busy and there's all this type of stuff going on. So it's a little bit more intuitive, but they want to feel good. And I think that there are ways, all of us, 1,600 people here uh, over these two days, which is just incredible. We're the types of folks that, that are in these positions of privilege that have the opportunity to go, all right, if people want to feel good about their purchases, if they want to have tasty, healthy, fresh, clean, green food, then we've got to work really hard. And we are, we are, that's really important. We've got to work really hard and continue working hard to get them that. So how can people become more connected to their food? If you look at the behavioural sciences literature, education itself doesn't seem to do that much to change behaviour. It's really important. Knowledge is, is, is powerful, but it doesn't seem to directly cause behavioural change. So I think one of the things that we've got to try and do is we've got to tell more powerful stories. Not many humans are like, let me dive into the statistics. Like We love stories and we connect to stories because they're emotive and we can then develop empathy and compassion for other humans that are actually just like us. You know, just because I live in Melbourne doesn't mean I can't feel what someone feels that's producing food in far north Queensland. You know, there's still a human that has a similar life experience in many ways to me. So I think we can tell better stories. And we can do that in lots of different ways. We can do that on our food packaging. We can do that through radio and TV and different media outlets. We have to do all of the system science stuff and earth science and soil science, all of these different complex things we got to do. But I think we got, we got to get better at telling relatable, compelling and, and kind of like hopeful stories. And I am seeing this space change more and more. I'm picking up things from my supermarket and getting a little bit of that story about the company and product. When it comes to advertising, how are we going to know what's authentic, what they claim to do is what they are doing? Because I, I guess it's just going to be overwhelming for customers when it comes to trying to decide what's best for them and their families. And it, it already is. Like so, so our brains haven't changed much in a couple hundred thousand years which is sort of crazy to think about. We get anywhere between, depending on what source you cite, 6,000 and 50-odd thousand messages telling us we're consumers a day. And so you then ask, well, Nate, are you saying give people more info? Like, it's just going to make it harder. I, I don't think we can do that. But I think there's a process that we have to go through to get to the point where it's, it's no longer relevant to do that. So at the moment, it's really important for brands to tell their story and to try and differentiate because it's not its not normal. It's becoming more normal, but it's not normal. That was Nate Kinch speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris at the Evoke Ag Conference that was held uh, last week in Adelaide. And uh, we've had a couple of texts come through. Lauren from Wakery texts in. She says, at the moment with uh, with shopping and uh, what she's putting in her trolley, she says the cost of living, it definitely does count, come down to affordability, which for her doesn't always uh, come down to nutrition, sometimes having to... Uh, 
to yeah have a look at what the cost of things are. And then Jenny from Adelaide, she has said that uh, definitely convenience um, when it comes to what goes in her shopping trolley. Uh, although now being gluten-free, she's a real label reader, so do tend to go for less processed foods and stick to fresh fruit and veg. So thanks very much, Jenny, for, uh, for that text. And uh, that's all we have time for today on the program. And uh, make sure you uh, tune in tomorrow, International Women's Day. So we're going to be celebrating the uh, the women in uh, in ag in regional and rural areas as well. That's all we've got time for. Cassie Huff will be back with you tomorrow. It's coming up to news time. It's one o'clock. Have you downloaded the ABC Listen app yet? Well, make sure you tap the heart, make ABC Radio one of your favourites, uh, hold on. We are one of your favourites, aren't we? Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.